People's Poetry Podcast with me, Jimmy Bowman. Episode 5 of Series 6 of People's Poetry Podcast. This is the poetry and spoken word podcast that follows me, Jimmy Bowman, a teacher and poet myself, as I wander the UK to chat to a range of poets and explore the UK's love affair with poetry. Now, this podcast is not just for those who are already into poetry. Our mission, my mission, is to show you that there is poetry for all walks of life and there is something out there written for you. Series 6 was recorded in the middle of the global pandemic, I'm sure you've heard of it, via the magic of Zoom. Series 6, we've decided to hear from you and we have launched our new open mic segment of the podcast. Each episode, we're going to select one of the many submissions we've had. A massive thank you to everyone that has submitted. It's been really tough whittling it down to just nine this series. Uh, But each episode, we are going to hear one poem from a new voice. From not just the UK, but around the globe. This is a poem I wrote about anxiety. Um, Unfortunately, I do suffer from anxiety, but I do find that poetry lets me articulate my thoughts in a creative way. Um, I'm a very creative person, so not only does this cater to my creative side, it also enables me to sort of articulate my thoughts, make sense of my thoughts. And I've found a um, community within Instagram as well, which which I'm very appreciative of. Um, My handle is a perpetrator with a quill. Um, So I'm going to read the poem for you, Drown, which is something I wrote a couple of weeks ago. Please don't let me drown in myself. I can get through almost anything, but I need your help through this moment, through this microscopic period of time while the fear washes over me like a tidal wave I can never see coming. I'm paralysed by my own thoughts. They twist and turn in my head until all I'm feeling is pure dread. So please, please don't let me drown on myself. Thank you very much. A big thank you to Quill for sending in that piece. This episode's guest was the amazing Louise Hale, a fellow Cockney teacher, journo, so lots and lots and lots in common. We spoke about Cockneys as a dying breed, writing poetry coming from a working class background, and we just had lots in common that that it was odd how our lives, we'd never met, but we'd done so many of the same things. I am incredibly excited today to be speaking to a refreshing new voice, certainly in my poetry playlist, but Louise L, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for uh, coming on and chatting to me. It's been in the pipeline for a bit, hasn't it? It has, it has, yeah, but lockdown's um, ensured that it couldn't happen straight away. Yeah, we've been talking briefly before we recorded about lockdown. How, how's, I'm calling it lockdown 3.0, but how, how has it been treating you? It's been an interesting journey, lockdown. I think for me, um, first time round, the first like quarantine, I really like thrived from it. I think the, I, I got like much needed rest because um, yeah. I'm a school teacher as well. And um, and whilst we were in lockdown, we were still work, we were still working from home. But um, I that's when I really started to pick up the pen again, actually. And it was really good to um, have some real uh, me time. And so the whole journey of um, lockdown and COVID has really taken me back to basic values and mm. made me really kind of reevaluate what's important so there's been some real pros and I think this time around the 
the obviously the winter one's been a bit more trickier and um, as I was saying to you earlier I've, I've almost been like a, a, a hedgehog where I've just like really hibernated and tried to kind of get through the um the colder months but yeah no I, I give I give lockdown quite a lot of thanks for getting me back into writing yeah I think well we said before didn't we the first one definitely the the sun made it a bit easier i've never really noticed before how much weather actually does influence your your whole outlook or your mood oh, um, massively yeah we were speaking about mental health briefly before as well and i've always been aware of it especially teaching you, you've constantly trained on it you're constantly delivering pshe to to the kids and stuff about mental health and how it's important and i i knew it was important but it's not something i don't think really other than one occasion in my teens, I've never really sort of thought about how it's affected me. But this winter lockdown, just in the subtlest way, like some days you wake up and then you just you haven't moved for ages and you think, yeah, my mental health has taken a bit of a battering, actually. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. And I think that um, you really you really realise how getting up and actually moving and actually going out and getting sunlight. I mean, one of the <clears throat> poems I wrote back in early lockdown is called Photosynthesize Me. And it's all about my relationship with nature and how in a way over the years I've been a real seasonal bunny you know and I think that the we really don't give kind of the outdoors and the seasons credit where credit's due in terms of kind of lifting our spirits and and I I guess when people have been locked down and they're not able to kind of go out freely it really does bring you know bring into question you know what what things are important for your mental health and certainly for me getting out going for walks, um, being in nature, eating well, you know, all those really give those things that are given, you know, and yeah. I was saying this to my friend recently, do we ever give thanks to the things that are give that are just givens? Do we give thanks for our feet, that like the, the things our feet do for us, you know, and do we give thanks to the fact that, you know, we wake up every day and we're breathing, you know, do we give thanks to, you know, fresh food, like just, just being grateful for, for being able to have money to buy the food that you enjoy, you know, like all those things that I used to take for granted. Lockdown has really made me reevaluate and be grateful for the kind yeah. of basic, the basic needs that we all need to, in, to ensure that we're happy. You know, it's, it's, I think it's going to be interesting to see how long it takes once, once this is all over sort of people to, go back to the way they were because at the minute I do feel like there are some positives that have come out of this like everybody is a lot more thankful for stuff and everybody's uh, you know thinking about little things like you said and not taking them for granted but be interesting to see how quickly people then start forgetting again and go back won't it I don't think I will do you like I think that it's made me really realize things you know things like all the consumer culture I mean I was always quite good with I've always been a bit of a thrift a thrift tart if you like and my, I grew um, where I grew up in East London you know I grew up in a single parent family and my mum we didn't have loads of cash but my mum had really good style and we spent so much time in charity shops and yeah. even when we were kids my mum would do boot sales over on Hackney Marshes and we would she would we'd, we'd be with her selling at the store and then she'd give us a couple of quid and go right you can go we can we can go around now and buy some bits and bobs you know and it really did make you realize the value of money so even though I've over the years I've liked buying lots of bits here and there and I've probably accumulated too much stuff luckily for me it's always been um in an affordable manner you know yeah. I love going into shops and buying trinkets and finding people's trash and it becomes my treasure you know 
this is the argument I have with my partner on a weekly basis. She, got, <laughs> she goes, she got so much shit. I said, yeah, but it's it's stuff I've bought in charity shops or boots houses. Yeah. I'm not spending millions. like. But, but then yeah. there is the argument that, you know, if you, when you're talking about mental health, like I've, I think I really believe in that idea that, you know, if you've got a cluttered home and you've got a cluttered space and you've got a cluttered mind. And I think over the years when I was trying to achieve certain goals, I always had something preventing me like I always had a, an excuse not to get something done because mm. I'd be like, oh, I've got to sort that cupboard out or I've got to donate yeah. that stuff. And there was always a reason to not get stuff done. And actually, if that stuff's not in the way, you've got no excuse. So then the only person you're going to get annoyed with is yourself if you don't get stuff done. Yeah. <laughs> There's no one else to be annoyed with, you know. So, yeah. yeah. Um, she'd definitely agree with you on that one. I know she would. It's amazing. Um, Maybe a, a poem about charity shops would be quite cool. Yeah. You know, to like think about the the kind of stories that poet that that charity shops tell and when what, you into them and where yeah. those where those items originated from. Yeah, like, they've all got stories to tell. I definitely. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk. Let's talk about um, you and your experience with poetry and go right back to the start. Then, so I always ask poets that come on not not when's the first time you wrote a poem when's the when is the first time you were aware of poetry was it a certain poem that you heard or um was it something that was read to you when you were little was it something you read on your own can you remember that first time you became aware of poetry yeah I think um and and it's nice that you ask it because I've only really recently um kind of reconnected with those thoughts but yeah I I it started for me reading for me wasn't an easy journey um I I got really vivid memories of struggling with reading and I'd like read books and I would I would miss out passages of books and then I'd hope that the next bit I read would would throw light on the bit that I've missed um so my first encounter with poetry was was really through silly rhyme um and it, and it was through um things like Michael Rosen's Quick Let's Get Out of Here which is a great book and he used to write incredible poems about his son Eddie when Eddie was a baby Eddie obviously he's now an adult and sadly Eddie died but um and he and Michael Rosen did go on to write a book about him dying but um I, I was a, I was in infant school and my I used to have a teacher called Andrew Jones and I used to sit at his lap like sit at his feet and I just adored this teacher um and part of me wonders because he was male and my father uh, you know my parents had divorced young um I always used to look up to him as a bit of a father figure and he used to read this story with so much gust and intonation and so much love and he had the biggest Adam's apple ever and because I used to sit so close to his feet all I used to see was this Adam's apple reading me poetry like this Adam's apple like rhyming and moving to a rhythm as this teacher was like reading rhyme you know and it was the yeah. same with like revolting rhymes was a favorite of mine I liked really yucky silly humorous um gross poetry and rhyme growing up it, the sillier the better you know that was kind of my when I first became aware of how two words could come together and they can they could rhythmically sound the same um so yeah infant school and then I guess I started writing in diaries um that was less poetry but um and then I have a really vivid memory of writing my first poem and I remember I used to be really observant as a child and I used to always look out my window we had we had this like two bedroom house sorry two bedroom masonette in Bow 
like ex-council it was nothing special but I used to always look out the window onto like the adjourning council blocks and there used to be this woman that would walk by with her daughter and her daughter had some kind of muscular disorder and the so the daughter the daughter found it very difficult to walk and the mum would always walk her up and down the street like every day without fail and I actually wrote a poem about what it would be like to have to be her Mm. Um, and I was really young at the time I must have been 13 14 so I was you know I know now I now know that to be you know empathy you know and I now know that to be the fact that I was quite a big empath and I used to try and understand you know even though we had it hard I used my mum was always a firm believer that there was a lot more people out there that had it harder and so I guess I used to try and put myself in those their shoes so yeah it started with really on one hand really silly crazy smelly bogey pooey you know crazy poetry like that you know that you'd read as a kid and I still make up those rhymes now with my children in class like I'll often I'll I'll just quickly reel off a silly rhyme to them that and I'll it will really resonate with me as to the you know it will connect back to the kind of kid I was and then yeah obviously it was um, writing my own, but in terms of a, a, a real established poet, I'd probably say, like moving away from the kids, I'd probably say um, <clears throat> Maya Angelou probably, which I guess is nothing, it's probably a predictable answer, but I was A-level, I was studying and I read this um, book about female poets and I read her poems and they it was almost like they jumped off the page at me and you know smacked me in the face and like you know really kind of made me aware that yeah you could write about pain and you could write about struggle and surrender in a way that was quite beautiful Mm. um and that's yeah that sent me on a on a certain journey of reading certain autobiographies and certain books um yeah, yeah so I think I'm I think I'm the same I mean you say it's predictable I don't think there's anything wrong with um what you're shown at school sort of starting the ball rolling mm. uh that that's certainly how it, it was for me as well um you messaged me saying about your diaries and I, <laughs> diaries is I don't know I, I tried to start them growing up but I just didn't have the patience to keep writing in them but it sounds like you did because you, you said you named yours Jude yeah it used to be dear Jude God knows where that came from. My mum used to like the Beatles. It could have been that. But I used to write frantically, without fail, and they were locked diaries as well, you know, like the ones you'd get a little key on so no one could actually go in. God knows what was written in them. And actually, when I came back from in 2009 when my mum sadly got ill with cancer I came back from Australia and after she passed away I went for a lot of my childhood boxes and I found all of the diaries and I oh wow chucked them away I didn't look at them I chucked them away and I when I trained um I recently qualified as a play therapist and you go on quite a reflective journey you know and you have to go look back over your own childhood and I really regret that I chucked them and I'm sure that there would have been only you know, part of me thinks maybe I just wanted a fresh start and I didn't want to look back at the old. Yeah. But part of me wishes I would have looked back in them. And I'm sure it would have just said, oh, Ryan hasn't noticed me today. <laughs> Why didn't he tell me he liked me? And, you know, and I was quite a big Take That fan and I used to be a bit of a Take That groupie. And actually, right. talking of poetry, one of the girls that I used to be a bit of a groupie with, we used to travel around London to go and, like, meet them. I used to go to, like, go in live and 
never mind the buzzcocks and I used to go on children in need and we'd sit in the audience and watch them and I'd met them a few times and I used to write poetry about the encounters we used to have with take that and the encounters I used to have with these girls that I met that I built a real kind of camaraderie with and one of them got in touch with me recently after years of not being in touch and she said to me that she'd seen my Instagram and she'd um, dusted off her take that box and she'd found poems that I'd written and she sent me them oh wow that was because I had no and two of them I had no recollection of ever writing yeah and she sent me them and it was really lovely to read back through my 17 year old self or my 16 year old self you know I think so, there's, yeah. there's something cringy but beautifully cringy about reading what you've written as a teenager I I, I wince I've, I've still got like a couple of notebooks that I keep and every now and then I was just sort of peeking it and I'm like oh my god mm, but I well, do th- I, I think it's, it's important a- it's a real outlet, isn't it? Like yeah. journaling, it's a thought, like diary, mate. If you encourage your kids to write in diaries, you're basically encouraging them to do reflective journaling at a younger age, you know. So regardless of what they write to them, it's important at their point, at that point in their development. So if they are writing that, oh, Ryan hasn't noticed me and oh, Sandra's not my friend anymore. Well, maybe that's the thing that's quite important to them at that point And it's an outlet. So I yeah. think that writing for me was always a, a, um, a form of self-soothe from quite a young age and I didn't make the connection until years later to the kind of writing path and journey I went on but um, yeah definitely um, I'm, I'm pleased I had that as an outlet definitely. We've got amazingly quite a lot in common haven't we because we, we have we, yeah we were talking about this uh, on Instagram beforehand when we were setting this up I mean both from Cockney heritage background, both the first in our family to go to university, both ended up in journalism somehow, um, yeah. both ended up training to teach, and now we're both in the in the world of poetry, which is absolutely mad when you think about it. it. Is, yeah. Absolutely mad. So weird. One thing I wanted to ask you, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a few things about different bits I've just mentioned there, but um one thing I wanted to ask is about the idea of being labelled a poet especially I've asked this question to people from similar backgrounds working class backgrounds but I've never had the opportunity to sit down with another fellow Cockney poet um, and ask about this so that label of poet uh, how has it sat with you or how does it sit with you has it changed over time because the world that we come from and we were sort of talking about this before we started recording someone from our world as it were going into the arts it's something I didn't shout about that oh I write poetry it never sat well (laughs) with me for a long time and I just wondered if that was something that you experienced as well I think yeah I think um I think by our very nature like my memories of East London are, are, are really nice memories of freedom you know and I've got really fond memories of like going out playing out you know friends knocking for you and asking you to play out on your bike and going out but on long cycles and my BMX to me was like gold, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I look back on that time on how important it was to chat and to talk to people and hear people's stories. And I think East London for me coming from the background I did 
storytelling was kind of in my bones, you know, and I, I'm sure you'll agree if you think about old relatives that Cockneys, they never get to the point. They want to tell the whole story. So they go completely around the houses to tell the story to get to the point that they could have made 10 minutes earlier. Right. Yeah. So yeah. by our very nature, we are storytellers. Um, and I've got fond memories being on Roman Road Market on the, and my mum stopping every 20 yards to chat to someone, you know, and there'd be a real dialogue that would be quite lyrical you know and mm. and and humorous and quick-witted and really smart you know smart use of language and it was like language they might not have had anything else we might have been piss all but like they might have had piss all in their pockets but they had each other and they could chat and they could chuck words around so I think in answer to what you're saying I always saw myself as someone that loved language but I had to master English in a way like a foreign language like because it didn't come easy to me I I remember being 15 16 and being at school and telling my teacher that I wanted to be a journalist you know and she laughed initially and but she did say to me you have got a really nice creative flair but if you want to work in the world of journalism you've got to say think not think mm. yeah you've got to get, sort out your f from your th you know it's not it's not thumb it's thumb you know and I spent I spent what seemed like weeks practicing th 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 you know, instead of saying the F, you know, and, um, and so, yeah, I, I always saw myself as a bit of a storyteller and my mum used to always say, oh, I've got a book in me. I've got a book in me. And I'm actually writing a poem at the moment called There's a Book in Me. Yeah. And it's about this idea that we meet people and they always say, oh, I've got, a, you know, my mum would always, oh, I've got a book in me, you know. Mm. And so um, everyone's got a story to tell. And so I guess for me, I, being a poet I don't I mean I, on my Instagram I put that I was a poet because after us after I started going and doing lives I thought yeah I am a poet you know and I've always been quite a modest person and even when I was a journalist I would never really announce it to the world you know and I always did used to feel like a bit of a, a fraud but in journalism like I felt like I always had to work harder grammar was never my forte but drawing people out and drawing people's stories out was you know and maybe that upbringing in the east end served me well yeah. where I got used to listening to stories you know so I feel like I was more of a storyteller and I think going forward whatever happens with my poetry I would probably refer to myself more as a spoken word storyteller than a poet yeah and whether there's a differentiation I don't know but um it's yeah I mean certainly when I went to uni um I studied when I told my dad, my dad's a real, my dad looks like Phil Mitchell, you know, he's a cockney, he loves West Ham, he loves football and fucking he fixes motors, you know, and that's his thing, you know. And so when I said to my dad, I'm going to uni, he couldn't understand, nor my mum really, why I wanted to get myself in debt to get a job. You know, their idea was that I'd go out and maybe get a job in a bank or I might try my luck and be a PA and yeah. wing my, chat my way through it, you know. Um, and it took them a while to understand that I was trying to kind of invest in my future. Um, so and my mum at the time when I did go into journalism as you'll know when you go into local journalism because I did an I did an NCTJ I don't know if you did the same journey no. and I went on to local newspapers and I earned a really low salary for years I mean you pay you get paid through blood and sweat in local journalism and it's brilliant but you don't get any money so you realize it does marginalize people because people that stay in that profession don't do it for living they do it for leisure they don't have to live on the salary because the salary tends to be so poor yeah so my mum found it really difficult even though I was in a job and I was writing and I was in my element they found it really difficult to, to accept that I was earning such a low wage yeah um, so that kind of yeah 
played its part if that answers your question so yeah now poetry a lot of my friends are like yes Lou yes Lou lyrical cockney Lou you know so it's quite good they're like giving giving me and I've got like this shared whatsapp group and when I do a poem I post it in there and they give me lots of like feedback and what my what my mates think is great you know um and having gone out on the poetry scene and meeting people and then having them get me on open mic and introduce me as a poet, it, the I, the belief that I am a poet has become more, has become more real to me. And that's good, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The idea. I think, I think I was, I can't remember. I think it's this series I was speaking to, I think it was Tyrone Lewis. And I said, it's only recently I've stopped opening these episodes on this podcast describing myself as an aspiring poet. I was like, at what point do I just become a poet? Mm. I mean, I write poems, I perform poems, I've got poems online. Surely that makes me a poet at, at some level, doesn't it? Um, I think, so- yeah, I think a wordsmith is, you know, like, I like the word wordsmith. And um, in one of my poems that I'll read you later, that I, it's called What's a Free Word Worth? That's about how I used to literally like live and live eat breathe dictionaries you know and growing up I've got really vivid memories of like being out in a situation where I would chat to someone and they might say oh that was very enthusing and I'd be like enthusing enthusing what does that mean and I'd go home (laughs) and I'd look it up in a dictionary and I'd go wow look at that and then I'd try and use it in my next kind of outing with someone and some friends would be like what what are you on about and yeah. someone else would say that's not the right context that you've used it and and I and I got a lot of like there was a lot of trial and error before I was able to linguistically expand the way I spoke because I was really cockney there was a point in life where I was really really cockney and I but I wanted to articulate myself and the only way to express what I was feeling and to get out in the world what I wanted to express was to was to master English better yeah and I, I've got this really in, vivid memory of like being on a tube and someone and I and I used to like watch what people were reading and I saw this man like put down the paper and as soon as he got off the tube I like run for it in slow motion you know and sat down and it was like <laughs> the Jewish chronicle and I sat there and I read it you know and I'd highlight words and I'd take the paper home and I would look up the words I'd highlighted so I could try and understand what they meant it's so funny you said that I used to do something very similar I had a little book that carried me especially when I was doing A-levels because I I suppose I thought I was Alperton's answer to Russell Brand I had the big air (laughs) I wore women's jeans and I, I, I used to I used to watch him I watched an interview of him that said he got all these big words from Blackadder and I loved Blackadder. So I went back through Blackadder and then, yeah, I just used to drop these words into conversation thinking I was, I don't know, God's gift <laughs> to English language. Abominable. I remember when I learned the word, oh, it's, a, it's an abomination. And I'd be doing all this <laughs> Russell Brand hand movement and people are like, Jim, what are, you, what are you doing with your life? Yeah. But, but I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. I, I remember when I, when I learned the word discombobulating and I still don't know really, if I'm honest, how to successfully use it. <laughs> I still wouldn't feel confident dropping that word in yeah. a conversation. Not that you'd have a need to really, but um, I love the sound of it. I love the sound of words. Like yeah. I love the sound of yeah, how words can roll off the tongue. I really do. Yeah. I love that you talk about as well um, people, because I always think conversations are poetry in motion. I'm constantly jotting down bits of uh, conversation I hear on buses and things like that. And you might, you must've had a lot of that on your time in uh, the market when you worked on the market just picking up bits sometimes it's it's, you don't even need to edit it things that people say I'm trying to write 
as well as poetry. I'm trying to write a, like a script at the minute for about football fans, like a sitcom. There's just so many bits I hear on the train. I'm like, that is perfect. I could never have come up with that. And I yeah. think I think it's just it's perfect as well because it's just so real. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes you're trying to write a conversation and it, it just sounds fake. Whereas the things people say are pleasing to the ear a lot of the mm. time. Yeah, I was very documenting like that. Like I would, um, yeah, I mean, I worked in a supermarket as well. I worked in Safeway before it was Morrison's. Um, and I would, and I was like a checkout girl and a deli girl and a bakery girl, you know. And the, the art to that was chatting to people, you know, yeah. and I... Um, but yeah, I worked on two stalls and yeah, you would get all the kind of cockney um, banter and, you know, the brutal stuff where they'd be like, come and get your pan out, do one, mate, you know, and it was always, it was that lovely humour and it was like, it was a, a stoic humour, but it was like, it was like, it made you not be too flaky, but mm. you know, like in a way, like it was this idea that you could like, not insult people, but it would be a humorous banter wouldn't it and it, you wouldn't be too sensitive to it yeah so yeah you would see the humor and um and I still have that humor to this very day like I'm a firm believer that if you're going to make comedy and you're going to joke about something there's not much that can't be joked about but obviously and it might be um controversial you know but I really like Frankie Boyle and when I think about the stuff that he like he's got bad flack over the years but I love his stuff yeah. you know and in the end you've got to be able to accept that sometimes humorous stuff can be brutal and actually when I think back to my time on Roman Road Market you, there was so much some of the some of the blokes particularly the banter they had they could have been they could have been actors you know yes. they could have been they could have been you know they could have worked at Butlins you know they could have done it you know because yeah. they had that they had the confidence and they had the, the the verbal confidence to just say whatever they thought you know and it was and some of it was poetry in itself you know lyrical in itself yeah you, you I didn't think of that but now you've asked me it's made me really think yeah you know how much do we owe like if we were honest to ourselves how much do we owe to that kind of environment quite oh, a lot probably there's so many people still to this day like, like in boozers especially and if I'm sitting there waiting for a mate to turn up and I still think even in 2020 2021 I think how long did it take you to get that funny or get that good? It's just, it's sharp. It's so quick sometimes. And it, like you said, like they, they could be actors. It's that good. And I'm thinking, how did that happen? How have you gone from a small kid to this stuff leaving your mouth? I think that I just, the, the thing that used to always make me feel a bit sad for some people is that you'd see their potential, but because they didn't have the means to like, and, not, and an education doesn't guarantee everything at all, but it gives you some stability, yeah. you know, and it gives you a path in life that you might not otherwise have, you know. And you, I, I think back to a lot of the people I met, um, and I think I, out of my friendship group, I think I was the only one that went off to college, you know, and everyone else kind of took a similar route to their folks, which is, it might have been what they wanted to do, you know, but there's so much potential, but the path isn't laid for them to go on and achieve higher things. You know. Yeah, you talk about uni, and I've asked this a few times on uh, on here, but it'd be interesting to see what your take is. Don't get me wrong, I I enjoyed university. I felt privileged to go. I definitely wasted ninety percent of my time at university. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I didn't achieve what I could have achieved. But I felt like the course itself di didn't really do much for me. It was it was the people I met and the the experiences I almost did on my own so I got into radio 
through university and I did a radio show for the student union and that opened more doors but it was nothing to do with the course I'd paid for but if I hadn't paid for the course I wouldn't have been there yeah um, so I suppose I'm doing that thing and I when I'm going all around the houses but I suppose my question to you is what do you think uni did help you get to where you are now or if you had your time again would you have still gone down that route wow yeah that's a, that's a that's a interesting question there's two reasons why it's interesting because I I started volunteering on my local rag when I was 17 and journalism in the very main as you'd know you don't need a degree you you actually back then you could have just gone and done like a national certificate in journalism so I sometimes think had I not gone uni would I have taken a different road into journalism because I definitely had the determination and the perseverance but with journalism I just kept hitting a wall and I couldn't make a break with it mm. but then when I did go to uni there was a couple of reasons why I went and my family know this so they won't care that I say it part of it was escapism you know because I wanted to get away from my, my upbringing was quite chaotic in parts um through no fault of my parents own really but it was chaotic and I what there was an element of escapism there was an, an element of giving myself a better chance I remember being young at least 16 17 and thinking there's got to be more out there than this yeah and I say that in one of my poems um I, I won't read that today but I'm writing one about migration called pick and mix pioneers and it's all about the fact that we're all like the opening line is um if growing up in London's melting pot has taught me anything it's that we're all migrants are we not and it's this idea that we're all pioneer people we're all wanting to move we're all wanting to grow we're all wanting to go places for a better life so I think going to uni for me was about getting a better life it was about opening up my mind my mind and it was a, an element of also getting away from my family and I can't lie that when I was when I did spend that time away from my family I did flourish a little and I could I didn't have to be that I didn't have to have that east end persona I could go and be whatever I wanted to be but then when I got there I re I had what uni really gave me was a point of reference. Mm. I could compare what other people had compared to what I had. It made me realise, yes, I had a lot less and we were poor in comparison to some people. You know, like I, I met people that were getting Volkswagen Golfs for their 21st, you know, and I, I, I'd be like if I got a cake, you know. So, but that didn't make me envious, but it just gave me a point of reference to see how other people lived. Yeah. Um, but then on the plus side, it made me realise and be really grateful for my upbringing because I met people that had never had jobs Jobs. I met people that had never come into contact with any ethnic minorities so they had no they weren't they weren't um diverse they weren't ethnically tolerant you know and I'd grown up in an area where and, and gone to a school where we had prayer rooms for Ramadan you know and we had shawa kameezes as part of our uniform and we had um lots of different um, nationalities so I'm I saw university helped me understand what I should be grateful for in terms of what the East End kind of upbringing gave me but did it give me um it opened doors you know and it made me more articulate it made me more confident in the art of romance probably and um but that was a rocky road you know but in the main I did something similar to you I I got a job on the local rag and I started I started doing voluntary work for the Man I went to Manchester Uni and I did Manchester um the Manchester rag and but I I regret probably not like my highest grades were in my freshers year you know where that didn't count you know <laughs> and I um I regret same <laughs> not having as much confidence I, I again there was a little part of me that felt like I was bluffing it and there 
in my own it poem, there's a line where I'll say it was like I didn't belong with the scholars or the labourers back home. I was in a nomad zone somewhere in the middle, you know, and it's this idea that I didn't want to just stay where I was in East London, but I, I, want, I didn't quite belong with the um, scholars and the academics either. Yeah. When and and now you know, I, I think what age affords you is you you realise you are who you are. You know, and one thing my mum used to always say to me is you know, always be yourself, whatever you decide to do. You know, and so I think age affords you this lovely um, understanding that you can mould yourself into whatever you are, and as long as you like who you are. I think that you know, line. That line in your poem, Mummism, uh, blurred class creation, sort of yeah. sums that up, doesn't it? That's that's a line does, that yeah. when I when I first heard that poem. Yeah, yeah thank you, because it was like that, and I always felt a bit of a blurred class, because I, and it's funny, because if you say it quick, it sounds like blurred class, you know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I did feel like a blurred class, and especially because I met a lot of people at, in Manchester that were from, say, Hackney, middle class, and friends that I still have to this very day. Um, and whilst on paper we would look the same, we were different, you yeah. know. And um, so I did start moving in more middle class circles. Um, and I got a bit of flack from my family. Like I'd come home and my auntie Linda would be like, look at you, the silver spoon in your mouth. <laughs> you know, and I'd be like, hardly, you know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. to them, it was like I'd gone all posh, you know. And I was stepping out of the um, the East End net, you know, mm. where now obviously it's much more common for East Enders to go to uni you know and good yeah. on them do you good think do you think because i didn't really think this until speaking to you now but do you think perhaps one of the reasons you fell out of journalism because i'm starting to think this now having spoken to you is that there was this sort of inherent desire to be a storyteller and a lot of the time in journalism you can't you are telling the story but it's not your words you're just writing about things because that was one of, I, it's funny actually I found my uh, feedback form from a lecturer the other day on <laughs> what was my final major project um, and, she, and she was fucking brutal she, she, <laughs> she, it was like a 32 page magazine you had to create alongside your dissertation and she put a uh, it was like uh, oh shock another story that starts off about you <laughs> because in my mind <laughs> in my no she was right though looking back but in my mind I was going to be um you know that sort of 1980s 1960s uh enemy roving reporter where it's like me hanging with the artist and yeah and that's all right because I guess back then music journalism when you think uh, there was a point when music journalism was really popular you know um but no I agree I do agree with you there was a point where I was a news journalist and I didn't enjoy it as much it was very cutthroat not much compassion it was very um you were just a recorder you were just the messenger yeah yeah I, um um but I used to really enjoy feature writing and I'd say my forte was feature writing and I used to enjoy that because you could really like study the person study their mannerisms learn about their life and mm. and I, there's two people that stood out to me that I interviewed over the years and they were both EastEnders actually both Cockneys one was called a guy called Colin Jones he was a photographer and he'd gone to like the Royal Ballet School when he was young and he was yeah and he went on to be he 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 was on tour with the Royal Ballet um and he's they were he was in the Philippines and they were burning down 
this village and he went and bought himself a camera and he started recording what he saw and he went on to be a really world famous photographer and he grew up in the East End, he was illiterate. And then I interviewed this other woman called Gilda O'Neill who's since sadly passed away and she grew up in East London, she was illiterate till she was 21 and she wrote seven, 17 novels, she had four degrees, she became like a doctorate for one uni that she studied at. And her grandfather was like a criminal, you know, mm. like he and when I interviewed them, they were so inspiring to me. And it made me really understand the true essence of storytelling, getting stories out, imparting stories with people, sharing stories, you know, and it's good. Like your podcast in a way is a storytelling podcast, you know, and it's it's so good that we, you know, share stories like who we don't share them anymore. Yeah. Me without sounding too too techie but the media age has killed that like you know it, it doesn't really allow for shared stories so yes and no I got out of journalism in them in if I'm truly honest because I found a lot of the people I met were, were just had no compassion yeah up in the top end of it because when I started doing freelance work on nationals I just found it really cold um and I found that I couldn't live on the salary I was feeling really like burnt out you know, and I just wanted a change. And actually, that's when I buzzed off to Australia seeking change, you know. And in Oz, I was offered a really good journalism job and I turned it down because I yeah. didn't want didn't want to do it, you know, for a while. Um, and, yeah, you're right. Now I realise my type of writing, maybe there's no newspaper for it. Maybe it is about speaking. Maybe the key is telling it with your mouth, not with your, you know, with it being written in print. Yeah. Yeah, and then you trained obviously to be a teacher, but you like you're primary, aren't you? Because I'm secondary, yeah. Early years. What's the poetry like for primary? I don't really know much about about primary curriculum. Is there much poetry in the primary curriculum for English? And there is, and there isn't. I think the one thing I love about foundation years is that you're teaching children the art of sound. You know, and I I relied on phonetic understanding for years even as an adult I still rely on saying a word and thinking of spelling it phonetically so I like the fact that you're helping children on the journey of understanding sound because actually if we think about it and I say this in one of my poems as well babies listen to babies learn to read with their ears first so Mm. when you think about sound and music and rhythm and um, rhyme um, you take a classic book like Dr Zeus the cat in the hat you know you read that story to a child, what they really hear first is the rhythm yeah. and the sound. Um, and that is how children first learn to read. It's not with our eyes, you know. So I think I find that quite powerful. Developmental writing, I love the way children just develop their writing through, you know, little fear. Um, but poetry-wise, yeah, we have visiting poets. We have, we get children to write poetry, but it's really simple stuff. It's not really until key stage two that they start doing poetry. And actually, the head has asked me to do a poem, a poetry club, and That's I might cool. do it, but I'd only do it with the older kids, I think. That's cool. I might give it a go. I might get some enjoyment from it, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I started a club at my school uh, where we... we basically cobble together a magazine on that half term so it's like a little press room and they all go and do their stories and then we, we yeah but um we've just so started that's a throwback actually because when i was at when i was doing my a levels i used to write i used to do like a newsletter mm. and it was like i thought it was like what you're saying about being some you know 
funky, hard-hitting journal. I remember like, I used to write this really naff newsletter and send it out. <laughs> <laughs> but it was good like my yeah. the school in all in all fairness to the school I went to they really did try and harness my ambitions no no so they really did because we even had a visit from Prince Anne and she came and opened like the new building and they asked me to be the press officer for the day yeah when I look back you know it's nice that they were really trying to harness that within me yeah that's nice yeah. we've got um we've just just started this year as well a, a poet laureate position at the school uh, and some of the students had to send in their work and we appointed one for the year and so they have to write all the poems about things that have happened at, at yeah. school but also in the year I thought that was quite a good idea I'd love yeah. to like if, if for me if not if money wasn't an object and you know you know you know we always say oh if I won the lottery this is what yeah, I do yeah. but if I did win the lottery I would um love to kind of build workshops where I could go around to like secondary schools and actually work with kids through um like through poetry and work to kind of put on a performance at the end and it could be anything it could be trauma based it could be through life experience and just develop develop the kind of confidence and poetry that way I, I'd love to do it I'd love to kind of go around different schools it sounds terrible and find teenagers that have had quite difficult lives mm. and bring them bring them all together and put on a show yeah I've always no. thought I'd love to do something like that I think it's important writing especially or, or being creative more broadly it, it, something that if you've gone through a traumatic experience is, is a great outlet for it isn't it so have you have you heard of the writer Lem Sassay I'm sure you have no, no he's, a, he's a really it's worth looking him up he's a poet Lem Sassay and he um he he um has had a really interesting life he was in care I mean he's Ethiopian so he had an even tougher time in care and he's I read he's, he's written a book called My Name Is Why and it's all about how the care system in the north he, I think he was in the Midlands he um they literally his mum went back his mum wanted him back and they wouldn't give give him back to her and he found all this documentation to prove it but he did a, a great, an amazing show at the National um, the, the the young Vic and he basically worked with kids in care and he did the same he he did workshops with them and they put on um, a poetry show and it was so moving and it was yeah. um it's yeah you might find the, the you might find some of the extracts on YouTube and it was monologues about why like um, their their experience of being in care and like even little things like you know like when you refer to children that are looked after children the word yeah. spells lack you know and it's like this idea that they're living in lack you know mm. and it was really powerful and and, and that's what he did and I, I, he was such an inspirational guy you know i have to check that out yeah. let's talk about um <clears throat> excuse me let's talk about your work uh because you mm. said that you you're am i right in saying you're currently writing a poetry collection or you're putting together I am, yeah um, yeah but um, I'm, if, if you're telling me, we were chatting earlier, if you need about 50 poems, I'm on maybe 20, 22. So I've got a way to go. Well, that's, just, that's pamphlet material, isn't it? I, I was always thinking maybe get a pamphlet out first. I think they're mm. good. I, like, I do enjoy a pamphlet. It's not not too much to think about at once. Not that collections are too much. I love collections, obviously, but I think pamphlets are a good thing to aim for as well. So, yeah, you're working towards your, your collection and the poems that... Uh, you've shown me and that i've seen on your instagram obviously a lot of them as we've spoken about about real people aren't they and and conversations and life experiences but i think there's some 
some really nice themes around being true to yourself and certainly bettering yourself, which are all things we spoke about uh, already today. And there's two poems I was going to ask you to talk about. Obviously, we need to talk about mumism because that is the first one I saw of yours just before, hmm. I think, because it was the Word Spoken podcast, wasn't it? Yeah. And before you contacted me, uh, I'd seen that one because I said to you when you contacted me, you are on my radar. There's Aww. not there's not many Cockney poets about, so I wanted <laughs> wanted to sit down yeah. Cockney and Cockney, yeah. Um, but it is infectiously empowering, Mummism, and I think the video is wicked. Where where was that filmed? That that, so that was shot. Um, <clears throat> that was shot outside a derelict council block in Homerton, and I I can't take credit for that. Interestingly, my first partner, um we stayed friends over the years, you know, he's now married, got kids, but we stayed friends. And recently he got in touch with me and he said, Oh Lou, you know, I saw your poem. Um, I saw your poetry. Why don't you let me film, like film one, start filming some of them for you, you know? Yeah. And um, he works in like, photography and lighting and stuff. So he did the shoot, you know, and so it's all credit to him. His name's Bruce Bassaday. He's got a website. I'm sorry, a little plug there, but um, and he took me down there and he said he had the he had he, he was the one that said look I've got this perfect place and we went down there and it's all you can't actually go down to the building itself it's all boarded up because it's being pulled down um, but yeah it's in Homerton um, it's on a high road so filming was a real shit fight because we got there one day at 4 p.m in the afternoon and the noise was just too the traffic mm. was just too bad yeah so we went back at like six in the morning like that's how dedicated we were to get that shot in front of that building and um and yeah it was lots of fun you know it was really good and I guess doing it with someone that you know years later it's like you've got a friendship with someone that you used to care for you know so I because I know him like I don't feel any I don't feel nervous to perform in front of the camera as such, yeah. you know, so it was nice to have someone that um, knows just how passionate I am about writing to film it for me. So, yeah, it was filmed in Homerton, really great location. And I think that kind of, that's the way I'm going to go. I think my part, my, my um, migration one, I'm going to go and film it outside the refugee museum. And I'm yeah. going to try and do some poems where I, where the location's connected to what I'm trying to say. There's another similarity there. The, the poetry video I just uh, recorded, which is the first one I've recorded properly, if you like, um, was with someone I've known for years. I went to school with him and he's now a cinematographer. So yeah. he, he helped me film mine. But certainly, like you said, knowing that person made it a lot easier to actually film because you sound you feel like a bit of a melon standing in this public place yeah. doing, doing poetry. <laughs> so yeah. it, was, it was nice to have... Uh, Billy Bones, there's my plug. Billy Bones Productions, yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> yeah, he shot mine as well. But no, it does. It looks really good. Fair, fair play to to your your ex. I really there. enjoyed it's, it's it. You know, it was yeah. fun to do. I mean, it was freezing. By the end, I had like blue blue fingers. You know, like it, it got really cold. But so it, it, I really enjoyed it, and I got really good feedback from, like you say, the Word Spoken crew, and yeah. I got that the um, some other poets who do videos had said to me it goes to prove that if you can put a video with a poet with a poem it can sometimes make more impact that's, that's you know? what, and so that's I what really appreciated all the kind of feedback I got from it yeah so for anyone who hasn't uh, anyone living under a rock who hasn't seen it how would you um, describe the sort of themes what's mummism about mummism um, I'm happy to read it if you want I'm happy to yeah, read it that, and, and yeah. say it That'd be perfect, yeah. But really, mummism is about my mum. Um, this year, 
a lot when I wrote it just before Christmas it was the 10 year marked the 10 year anniversary of my mum dying and um I had always been someone you know talking about being the only one going to uni I'm always that member of the family that gets called on when someone wants a eulogy or someone wants a poem at a wedding you know it's like oh loser writer let's get her to do it you know but I really wanted to write something in memory of mum and I was feeling quite melancholy about it being 10 years and I just thought let me do something that's dedicated to her and it was just about all the weird and wonderful wisdom my mum tried to bestow on me over the years as I said to you earlier she was quite a humanist my mum really humanistic and um, she'd walk around like this little Buddha when we were kids and she'd be um and I've still got it here like it sits on my shelf and it's and she would rub its head and go rub its head and rub its tummy and it'll bring you good luck you know Mm. and so she was a real wordsmith in her own right and often when I've performed it at open mic I do say that my mum owns credit to this poem as much as I do because I went through the the shoebox of cards that I've kept over the years that she'd written me and it was painful to do but I went through it and I took from it not her exact words but I took the meaning she was trying to get to me yeah undertone of what she was trying to teach me about life and then I put all that together and I and and at what what came out of it was mummisms um and it was a real honor and last year when I was going to open mics I regularly performed it because it was in it was her 10th year and I would say that that I'm I'm reading this in memory of my mum you know and so it was, yeah, I'm glad I submitted that to that competition. I'm glad, you know, it got as many hits as it did, you know, and it's it, some of the wisdom I've followed, some of it I haven't, you know, but it's, yeah, it's just like paying, it's like an ode. Yeah, yeah. I, to bestow on me over the years, you know. I love it. I love how it was put together with the cards. There's so many, as I said, phrases in there, like the, the blurred class creation that stick with you. Um, and I think the title's wicked, Mummisms. Mummisms, yeah. And you know, if people want to check it out, they can go to my Instagram at yeah, Curly Wordy. Yeah. But um, I definitely am happy to perform it whenever you want me to. Perfect. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. And the other one that uh, I've written down for you to speak about is Own It, because I, I think that's again same same sort of levels of empowerment. Own It. Uh, I enjoyed watching that one on your Instagram. So for anyone who hasn't seen or heard that one what would you say well, I'd quite like to re-record that video I I look a bit bedraggled in that video but I was like listen this is real life isn't it you know if you look bedraggled yeah film it, you know but yeah own it own it's yeah it is just about and it's quite poignant because I, I love mirrors I've got lots of mirrors in my flat but it's about looking really looking at yourself looking inward looking at your inner world because we can kind of create this external world and we can convince ourselves everything's all right but you've got to own your shit and if you mm. can own it and you can understand what happened and why it happened and sometimes it's no one's fault but especially if you've had early trauma or chaos in your life but you can actually use it as a way to grow it's that much you know it's powerful and that's really what own it's about like owning who I am and yeah I've there's been shit in my family and there's been stuff that I've had in my life but it's actually made me who I am so not to not to disown that actually to 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 embrace it as a friend yeah. in a way and say yes that that is part of who I am and yeah you know. I, think, I think there's a powerful message within it as well understanding yourself and coming to terms and accepting who you are what you are makes certainly your outlook on life it might not make actual oh, life easier but yeah, yeah make make. i think i got to like my mid 30s early 30s and i started to really like like accept that actually 
I'm I'm me. This is who I am. And if I like this, it's because I like it. If I like wearing brown shoes, it's because I like wearing brown shoes. If I want to eat sausages for a week, I'm going to eat sausages <laughs> for a week. That's who I am, you know. Yeah. And that's a really liberating feeling. And I never want to. I never want to. I don't like to use the word grateful when my mum dying in the same sentence. But I do believe. Like I don't. I'm not religious in any way but if, if I am an atheist I'd say but I do believe in the cycle of life and I am quite spiritual and so I probably lean to Buddhism the most and I do believe that even through hardship you have to be grateful for what comes out of it and through my mum dying I did become um, more acutely aware of why I did have to like I say in the own it poem but it's about holding the worms and owning the can opener that opens it which is the line you know and it's about opening that can of worms looking at it and don't be scared if it's something a bit dark and shady you know oh god you know I spent years not wanting to address my that my sister had depression when I was young you know and and it was something my family never spoke about but actually when I did speak about it it did cause a storm to begin with because um, they were saying to me, well, why 20 years later are you bringing it up now? Yeah. It's because 20 years ago I didn't feel brave enough to tell you that I weren't coping either. You know, but you've got to look at that stuff. And actually, mum dying, the pain of her dying, the, I couldn't close the lid on that can anymore. So it actually said to me, look at this stuff to be happy. And I started to get real physical physical complaints. And it, if I if I... If I leave this podcast recommending any book, there's an amazing book called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's by a guy who has spent like 30 years in mental health. And, and it's all about brain, mind and body transformation after encountering trauma. And, it, and trauma can be anything. It can be that your parents got divorced and, and you feel wounded from that. Or yeah. it could be that you were a refugee or it doesn't matter what. But it's about how your body keeps a stress memory of that event and actually if you don't process that event it in in the long run your body just ends up saying no you know mm. and your body will produce pain um and i had got to a point where i was suffering from quite bad stomach problems and chest problems and i just yeah i, I thought to myself what's the worst that can happen i'll like myself more yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know and so i i went on that journey and it's taken about 10 years and yeah. I finally arrived at a place where now I'm like, right, I want to share it. I want to get my words out there and I want to help other people know that, you know, you can, you can learn from everything in life, regardless of what's chucked at you and you can grow from it. Yeah. I think the the twenties is that decade in people's lives is, is a horrible decade. I think own it is, is almost like from the thirties onwards, isn't it? When, yeah. when people start thinking like that, and certainly, certainly when I look back at my early twenties, I think well, that was not a shit time as in it, like you, you had no fun, but it was just, I don't know, in terms of thinking about yourself and your place in the world, I guess this is a bit of a horrible time, the twenties for that. Yeah. And it's also like owning, yeah. Owning who you are. And what you stand for mm. and um irrespective of what your parents stand for or what you were taught as a child you know it's about you like you say finally um using all those formative years and all those uni years and in your 20s and arriving at a place where you say yeah this is actually this is who i am and this is what i stand for and and you know what that's okay it's, yeah. it's kind of that kind of poem yeah 
something that comes up a lot in in conversations uh, with poets and people in the arts in general as we've touched upon already is about how working classes are underrepresented or traditionally were perhaps not so much now um, depends on your viewpoint on that but something I have to talk to you about is cockneys as a dying breed because this something we spoke about off camera but I certainly think when you look at London now and the people in London obviously it's so different to 50 years ago even 20 years ago 100 years ago um, and and the cockney is a bit of a dying breed there's not many of us about I would say or not many people that that are loud and proud about it anymore I find which makes me sad what does it mean to you to be a cockney oh it's a good one for me to be a cockney what it means it means um oh, that's a hard one I guess when I think about growing up in East London it I was always I always gave people the benefit of the doubt and I think there's something about cockneys where they do give people the benefit of the doubt they're, I think they're in, the, in their very nature, they're compassionate people. They want to know about people. They're friendly. And they'll say hello. How are you going? How's your day? They'll do that. And, and they're not a nutter or they're not, they're not, they don't want anything from you. They're just trying to be chirpy. That, that true sense of a chirpy cockney, it does exist. You know, they're chirpy. They're full of spirit. And I guess when I look back over some of the roller coaster bits I've gone through in life, I've always remained quite an optimist, quite an optimist. I've always remained quite positive. So I think, being a Cockney to me is about looking on the bright side of life, even when things get dark, you know, and um, my mum taught me that. My mum taught me that there's always a solution, you know, and, and, and in a way she made me think that if anything was possible, mm. as long as you can believe that there's a solution. She modelled that to me, you know, that's what, what I saw her do. There was never something she couldn't overcome other than cancer, sadly, you know, and so she was someone that was a real powerhouse. Cockney to me as well is having a really good work ethic. Both my parents were incredible workers because they had to be because they struggled. My father's an in got an incredible work ethic, um, you know, and he he's an East End mechanic, you know, and he he's a bit of a bit of a wheeler dealer, you know. Like I've got this really vivid memory when I was growing up where we used to sell like Del Boy leather jackets mm -hmm. and my, we had like this row in our living room and it was like it had different leather jackets on and people would come around our house to knock to try the jacket on and they'd be like oh I'm just here to try one of those coats on that's for sale you know and it's like where did the leather jackets even come from who knows off the back of a lorry probably right yeah. so Cockney for me it was also being entrepreneurial and being resourceful and being like thinking outside the box people my mum one of my mum's mottos and which is what I say in my what's a free word worth poem is um, when you ain't got money, you've got ideas. And, you know, my mum had tons of ideas because she didn't have money, you know, but what mm. she did have was she found the means to make things happen. So that's what, that's a lasting legacy on me to be cockney was to be resourceful and was to be proud of, you know, making do with what you had. And I was always very, very vehemently proud of East London. If someone criticised it, I could criticise it. But if I was in the company of someone and they put it down, I would highly defend it. Because um, I felt like it was always treated like the armpit of London for years, even though it was on the cuff of the city, mm. you know. And I used to really dislike it if I was in the company of people and, and they, and they <clears throat> used the word deprived. And actually, 
the poem I'm writing, Dying Breed, the opening line is, it never felt deprived to me, you know, that proletariat, blah, 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 by the, uh, not privy to the sea, you know, and it's this idea that it wasn't, it, it's all that I knew, so it didn't feel deprived to me. So when people use the word deprivation to describe Tower Hamlets or East London or Cockneys, I, I never liked it yeah. because it, it, it portrayed a certain illness to the people and actually the people have spirit so it's about spirit as well it's about you know um being being like happy-go-lucky like mm. even though people had it shit sometimes people were high-spirited well, I was yeah. around I grew up around a lot of people that were high-spirited some of their lives didn't work out well and some of them are dead you know some of them died young but my memories were really one ones of fun you know and um and even when I bump into people now that I went to school with, they're still like, oh, what, oh, what, look at you, oh, what, oh, what? You know, and it's this lovely, oh, great to see you, oh, what, oh, what? you were one of my best mates at school. You know, and, it's, and they've got this lovely, yeah, yeah. lovely energy that is just a, a notch above. It's not too flat line. It's almost really like an elevated energy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, interestingly a poem that I'm writing that I haven't finished yet when I was a young child I was born with a birthmark on my face and um so a lot of people knew me as the girl with a cherry chin and that's the poem that I'm writing it's called face up and um I used to walk a lot with my face down because I it was on my chin and I used to be quite self-conscious about it and it affected my self-esteem for a number of years and but that's how I was known and at primary school it was a very endearing term it was strawberry chin or cherry chin you know and even still when I bump into people from like when I went to school with they'll say to me where's your thingy gone where's your thingy gone you know so they'd be fit and so I'm writing a poem about that because I, I became a teacher advisor for a charity called Changing Faces and that was all to do with disfigurement and birthmarks and acid burns and stuff like that and I've really kind of spent some time thinking about how that shaped me as well as a teenager yeah. you know um and so I'm writing a poem about that. And again, so this is what I'm saying to you. I, I'd love to be able to work with kids that, you know, have those kind of difficulties, but for them to understand that they can get through it. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah watch the space on that one. God knows where I'll go and film that, though. Some of these ideas sound great. I can't wait to read Thank them. You. Thank you. Towards the end of each episode, we'll talk about editing, because editing is obviously a big part of, of writing poetry, something i've definitely struggled with in the past something i'm kind of getting used to now that's why i just think it's always interesting to hear how how other poets uh, approach poems things like that when once you've written a poem in its first form and you've got it on the page what is the first thing you do to it as part of your editing process oh when i'm writing a poem first i get an idea sometimes i might get the sometimes i might get the last line mm. sometimes i get the first I get a theme, so I'll put, I'll do, I'll, I'll do like a speech bubble, and then I'll brainstorm any words, any rhyming words that I associate with it, and it can be a really basic skeleton, like something you'd expect from a child. Hmm. It might be like thinking of words that rhyme, just so I can try and then put the clothes on those hangers, so to speak. And you'll know as a journalist, you always look for a hook, you always look for a hanger. Yeah. Everyone needs a hanger, right? So I've, I've brainstormed the words. Um, that rhyme with it first and then I think about the point I'm trying to get across so I'm sure as you know yourself as having done journalism I, I write it all out first and then I go through it 
and it's almost like peeling the onion a bit. I shave it and shave it until it just gets a bit tighter and tighter. And, and I've gone back to a couple of poems that I've since thought were finished and then I've even changed it a bit more mm. and shaved it a bit more. But, yeah, in the main, I like to think of words that can connect to it first. Um, and then that allows me almost like a, a pathway to to hang my point. Yeah, yeah, yeah whilst also bringing in a bit of rhythm and I like rhyme um I think it's I think rhyme got a bad rap at some point certainly I've noticed in schools children come in these days from nursery with a lot less awareness about rhyme mm. but rhyme I think it's hard to do uh, but it's nice when people rhyme in poetry I think it's um and some people don't they do more prose and that's fine as well but I like putting a bit of rhyming lingo in there yeah that's I like a flavor I like rhyme. I like, I think I like, don't get me wrong, I've written poems where there is a, a solid rhyme scheme throughout, but I do quite like poems where there's bugger all rhyme and then all of a sudden you're just hit with little bits of rhyme, uh, sort of intermittently. I quite, I quite like that. Mm, definitely. Mm. When uh, you spoke about it then, uh, when, in your opinion, is it time to leave a poem alone? Because you, you can edit poems all the time, obviously, but for you, when when comes the moment that you think, that is that is done that is I'm happy with that yeah it's a good question I've noticed that my poems tend to be a certain length right um and the the one I'm writing on migration is it, it takes the accolade for the longest at the minute I've got to really shave it back because I touch on history I touch on like you know my point is that I try and say that the Aztecs the prophets did it the Aztecs the Romans and the Jews you know the Black Plague and the um and the Black Death played its role too. It's this whole idea that people were born to move. So I touch on history a bit. So that's quite long. And I've got to shave that. But in the main, I'd say, sorry, I have to laugh. A friend of mine recently told me that I always say in the main. <laughs> and I do. I'm, not, I'm noticing it. But yeah, I, I just, I recalled myself saying it and I play it back. And if I feel like it's missing something, I just add something in. But I listen to myself. I don't know what I don't necessarily do it to camera. I just record the audio on my phone and I listen to it. Yeah. And then I I, I can tell if I think something's missing or maybe a word's too long or. But sometimes I just go with what feels right. Um. And I think it, as long as it comes from the heart and it's the thing that the point you're trying to get across, then then it's accepted, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that's what's beautiful about poetry. You you know we accept it. I accept it. I accept what people offer because that's their offering. So it sounds like rhythm and listening to something back rhythmically is is a big part of your definitely your yeah. Process. And I um yeah I like to I like to play about with it as well. I mean I'm still mastering the performance aspect of it. I don't like mummisms was different was different because I shot that video quite a bit you know until we got it right until it was the the, the, vo the volume was right the sound but I'm still mastering some people can be real performance poets and mm. I'm, I don't know if I'm a performance poet yet. I think I'm more just storytelling, you know, reading as it is. That's, the, that's, that's what I'm, I'm trying to corner the Mike Skinner <laughs> sort of, <laughs> sort of delivery of poetry and trying to have that as my thing. I think I, yeah, I can't, I don't get me wrong. I love performance poets and I admire what they do, but I, I just can't see myself getting up there and, delivering it the same way because there seems to be for a lot of people this this kind of uniform delivery sometimes mm. uh, especially in the spoken word world and that just doesn't 
sit well with yeah you you can tell when people have been rappers before as an example and they go into poetry and they've got incredible deliverance but that's their style Mm. where I couldn't deliver like that you know and um but I've I've met this girl recently that went to like drama college and actually she asked me to be part of a collective before like to go down and do this gig in Hackney Wick with her before the whole lockdown thing happened um so hopefully it will still happen but um and she I was saying to her how it, my kind of highest when I when I was doing my GCSEs drama was always something I was really into and I was really good at doing storytelling monologues so in a way for me as long as I can kind of get the story across in a genuine way and people believe what I'm saying because it comes from the heart then then I feel satisfied with it yeah yeah I always end with this massively broad question but it's kind of the reason I started the podcast um and it's asking you your your opinion on it but in, it always amazes me that still in 2021 people have got this massive love affair with poetry because it's it's a really old form of literature why do you think it is that we still have especially in this country this this love affair with poetry i think i think poetry by its very nature is quite raw i think that it really evokes emotions and i think in, if you think of a, a novel, like I read a lot of non-fiction books because I've always loved, as as we've ascertained, ascertained st- like people's stories. So I yeah. love non-fiction. But if you take a fictional story, sometimes you have to read a lot of it to get to the crooks of the emotion or to get to the point of the story. And I think with poetry, it has this wonderful way of delivering a short spurt of feeling, whatever the feeling is. And it's an it's a it's a platform that allows people to talk about quite raw things quite dark things, quite topical things in a way that I sometimes think storytelling story yeah. books don't d- doesn't allow. You know, there's always that romantic side of it, but I feel like it's really going into a world of its own now, poetry. More modern poetry is allowing people to do, to really touch on modern day issues. And I'm, I'm all in favour of the way that, you know, even the way it's been used for mental health you know I think if it's a platform if it can work as a mental health platform and can really support people in understanding their mental health better then all the better you know so I think it's a powerful it's a powerful medium it's a powerful genre would it be a genre in its own right I guess it would you know I think that um you can't beat a good poem and I think it's it it just comes from not to say storybooks don't, but I think poems really come from the raw essence of what people are. It comes yeah. from experience and it really talks to people in a way that sometimes books don't. So I that's like- why I think it. But and I think, you know, writing in itself is a form of art. And I was saying this to a friend recently, how sad. And I was saying this to my class as well, that I was actually teaching the digraph qu. Q-U, and I was saying what a quill was and I was saying to them you know back in the day writing was a form of art people mm-hmm. would get a quill feather with some ink and they would write and it would be a form of enjoyment a form of art and you know and, and that's a dying breed that aspect of writing in itself is dying and that's such a shame because with if you if you give enough time to writing it will deliver you know and I think that's why writing out poetry for me first is important because I've got like a book that I write in loads of ideas and if I write it out and I stick with it it delivers it delivers and I can go deeper and I can go deeper and I can peel back that onion yeah um, I like that answer poetry is the raw essence of what people are that's nice 
It's true, isn't it? It's what we are. It is. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed chatting to you, Louise. Thank you for taking the time out. Where can people find your work, find you on social, stuff like that? So at the moment, I'm mainly operating from Instagram. My Instagram Instagram account is at Curly Wordy. So imagine the Curly Wordy chocolate bar, (laughs) but it's curly hair and wordy is in W-O-R-D-Y. All one word. Um, I, and I have got a YouTube account as well, um, but it's not as it's, it, it hasn't got loads of followers. So please come and follow me. And it's the same curly wordy as well. But mainly Instagram, if you want to follow me for any up to date stuff. Nice one. Well, we'll obviously link link that up when we put this out. So hopefully yeah. people can get over and watch Mummism. It is amazing. Uh, and make sure you click subscribe on Louise's YouTube to keep up to date with what she's doing. Louise, thank you very much. Sit down, chat. I've genuinely enjoyed that. Me too. It's been wonderful. It's been absolutely wonderful. And now two poems from Louise herself: Mummism and What's a Free Word Worth. So this is uh, Mummisms. You often told me to never judge a book by its cover. You might not know the half of it, and the story inside distinguishes the fighter from the lover. You were quick to remind me to judge people by their acts of kindness, so I could relinquish your rights to those with a selfish kind of blindness. You were adamant for me to always be myself, even if it meant being left on the shelf by men who are more selfish than women, you'd say, and those with hearts on sleeves usually pay. Men don't suffer from piles, you joke, because when God created man, he created the perfect arsehole. So see past the stars in your eyes, check their bankroll, avoid the ones who want to control and find someone who's an equal. They'll cherish you and make you whole. Oh, make sure they don't mind putting on a pair of marigolds. Now, don't go giving your cake away to any Tom, Dick or Harry and don't think a girl's role in life is only to have kids and marry. Be a woman who endlessly strives for her goals and don't be coerced into quenching that unquenchable thirst. Immerse yourself amongst the diverse verse of the many, not the few. Often those with indignant eyes are less likely to screw you over in life. It's hard being poor, but money, it doesn't breed happiness. It gives you choice. And often those without it have to shout with a louder voice so mean what you say and don't be mean when you say it be the maker of your own merit and you know when you're down on luck and low on bread keep your head and remember that money it doesn't guarantee life's riches there'll be hitches and bitches and glitches and snitches and you'll likely need many a stitches but switch it and let it be a marker of what never to be often pain helps us read and truly see So make sure you run with that resourceful code and you use what that East End jungle bestowed. I'll be rooting for you with all that we sowed. And when you hit that ceiling made of glass, remember you can't buy drive and you can't buy class. If people make assumptions, they're the arse. When you think you've got it hard, know know that people have it harder. But if you knuckle down, worship that library card and do your best, they won't only judge you by the size of your breasts. You'll be able to fly from this struggling nest, my girl, knowing you are more than enough and you'll break free from the piss poor handcuffs. Maggie may have given us our right to buy and Blair your right to an education, but be your own blurred class creation and defy anyone who tells you you can't because you really, really can. The next one's called What's a Free Word Worth? And if you haven't read it, if you haven't listened to one, I hope you enjoy it. This was the second poem I wrote in lockdown. So what's a free word worth? What's a free word worth? Because I'll be the first to admit I quite like a dictionary for dinner. It doesn't make me a sinner. 
words for breakfast and lunch. In fact, it gives my free tongue that crusader's crunch, freedom to the palate. Have you ever played unsung tongue foo with a beak that can bite if it has to? See, my tongue came wagging out of the wound, so freedom to me is letting my tongue run at a million miles an hour. That's its power, right? But your need for me to be seen and not heard left me tongue-tied, sour. But not for long. See, I love a good pickle and pork, so you don't get to tell me how to talk. My talk, the talking me. Speak yourself free. Dialect, belonging, common chitter, cockney chatter, jibber jabber. Talk to learn, talk to know, humble girl from bow. Sparrows fly high, me from the gutter, resilient wings flutter. When you ain't got money, you've got ideas, free them, talk them out, don't ask, don't get. Wars weren't won on silent tongues. Now, I'm not purporting that free tongues win wars, but if as babies we learn to read with our ears first, it gives us ample passage to prepare the verse that frees our tongues from hostile baggage. Better equipped to take on that savage when they realise that troubled tongues transcend. Talk thick, uh, come again, socially awkward or socially advanced, mate. I can talk underwater, damn right. I can talk the iron legs off a donkey, damn straight. Hanging off your ear roll, because this loquacious babbler's got soul. I could talk for England. I hope so, let's go. Cut me down because you've got no words to build me up. What a Berkeley hunt. Too much rabbit, or maybe you're just not enough hair. Don't you ever come up for air. Now, I'll breathe when I'm dead. Chew that fat, chase a chinwag, talk your mind full, dare to drivel, and don't mind your motor mouth. Are you still talking? Shut up, zip up, too gobby. Be silenced or beautifully heard. Don't hide, take pride. Saucy, sarcastic, straight talking, gift of the gab, deliver. It's not what you say, but it's how you say it. Adversity, educate, succinct, articulate. Words saved me. Six and stones, names hurt. Build up, don't break down. Talk to yourself kindly. Use words wisely. Listen, hear, respond. Words worth more than gold, sold. A massive thank you as always to you at home for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please do share it with a friend. You can find us on Instagram at People's Poetry Podcast, over on Twitter at People underscore Poetry. You can find us on Facebook, People's Poetry Podcast. I'm on Twitter, jbo, that's J-B-O, Pens Poems. And you can email us if you want to get involved with the show, if you're a poet yourself and you'd like to sit down and chat, or if social media just don't cut the mustard and you want to get in touch, it's peoplespoetrypodcast at hotmail.com. 